one of the challenges we had when we insured, it made a lot of cost sense for our UK domestic market, which at the time was our biggest market. But it's a real hard sell to get our distributors, even across the border in Europe, to buy from the UK because they, they're just so used to buying in China. And that, that, that was a cheaper price from China because they'd still have to ship the product from the UK to wherever it may be. And actually, the trucking cost from the UK to France or Germany is the same as the container cost from China. So they were looking at um, a more expensive product. And, and very frustratingly, it took us a long time to convince them to buy out of the UK. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills, and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers, and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode 128 of the Make It British podcast. On today's episode, I am speaking to one of my manufacturing heroes, Rob Law, who is the founder of the kids travel brand Trunky. Now, if you don't know what a Trunky is, it's one of those little moulded plastic animal suitcases, the ones that you see kids riding on at the airport, usually accompanied by a frazzled looking parent who's, who's tugging them along. Now, that amazing invention, which is part ride-on toy and part moulded suitcase, is the brainchild of Rob Law, MBE, who came up with the idea when he was studying product design at uni. The trunky became infamous when Rob appeared on Dragon's Den back in 20, no, 2006 and Theopathetis spectacularly pulled one apart. Now, the failure of the strap in Theo's hands on Dragon's Den certainly didn't lead to the failure of the business because Rob has sold over three million trunkies worldwide in the last 14 years and won tons of design awards. In 2012, he actually reshored the production of a lot of his trunkies back to the UK. He has a factory here in Plymouth, which makes all of the trunkies for the UK and a lot of the local area. So if you buy a trunkie in the UK, chances are it's been made in England at the trunkies factory. And he opened that factory in 2012 to tie in with the London Olympics. What many people don't know about Rob is that he was born with cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic condition which sadly killed his twin sister at the age of 15. Rob's illness and the death of his sister have played a huge part in his determination to make the absolute most of his life. And I think it's that determination which I'm sure has helped to contribute to a lot of the success of Trunky. I really highly recommend you get hold of a copy of Rob's book, which is called Six, 65 Roses and a Trunky. And I'm going to pop a link to it in the show notes for this podcast. It's a really amazing story, particularly inspiring if you're interested in UK manufacturing, which I know you are if you're listening to this podcast. Now, the audio on this recording is a little bit iffy. There are a couple of places where we lose the sound and it's slightly echoey, but hopefully my podcast editor has worked his magic on it and it's not too bad. I hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment of listening to this inspiring interview 
with one of the UK's best manufacturers. So, Rob, thank you so much for joining me on the Make It British podcast today. Delighted to join you. I am a very big fan um, of Trunky and I really admire everything you do. And I've just started reading your book. Wow. Amazing. What an inspiring story. Yeah, 65 roses and a trunky. Um, I do a lot of um, business speaking and uh, people always say, oh, you should write a book about your story and about all the resilience and overcoming the challenges. Uh, but I've never talked about my personal backstory. And um, when I was thinking about going down this book route, I, uh, I thought if I, if I did talk about my personal battle was dealing with cystic fibrosis and the loss of my twin sister when I was 16 and and the tools I used to overcome that, that adversity, it may help a, a wider audience. So, um, so yeah, it launched um, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's incredible because I never knew all that part because I knew the brand and I knew you were the man behind the Trunky brand, but I didn't know about your own personal sort of family background and, uh, you know, about what drives you really with such passion for what you do. So it's just really incredible. Do you do you want to give people a little bit of a summary about your background that you talk about in the book? Yeah, well, I was um, uh, a bit about my my background. So I was, I was born up in the northwest of England, just outside Chester. Uh, but I was born a twin with my sister uh, and we were diagnosed with cystic fibrosis about three months of uh, being in hospital. And that's a genetic disorder that affects uh, essentially the salt imbalance in the body. So that results in your lungs getting very clogged up and uh, your pancreas doesn't work properly. So you can't digest fats and uh, a host of other complications. So it resulted in uh, uh, very vigorous physio routines every day, a couple of hours a day, trying to clear the chest, nebulizers, lots of antibiotics. The first eight years of our lives, we couldn't eat any fat because our pancreas can't produce the enzyme to di- digest fat. So uh, then a, a new drug was invented that allowed us to start flip over almost overnight to a full fat diet, which was interesting in an eight-year-old never having tried a chip or a, a full <laughs> fat cheese before or anything like that or crisps. So it actually took a, a little bit of getting used to, but I do enjoy my cheese board now. It was a bit of a challenge to start with, but I suppose whenever I tried to seek self-pity from my mother, she was very clear that there were people worse off than us in the world. And um, that, that self-pity was kind of closed off. So it was just about getting on with it. And um, mm. and that's how we, we managed it for a while. But unfortunately, my sister got really ill, ended up having a heart and lung transplant, which gave her a completely new lease of life. But sadly... Uh, her body rejected those organs about a year and a half later and she passed away uh, when I was 16. Yeah, that part of the book was, um, well, it had me in floods of tears. I don't, you know, I, to go through that and to lose such a close relative. Yeah, it was, it was a very early life lesson in um, in trying to control the things you could control and forget about the rest. So, yeah, I could mm. either, I was faced with a choice. Do I wait for this disease to, to succumb? take over and um, and share a similar fate or do I try and squeeze everything I can out of life in a, in what's likely to be a much shortened lifespan so that, that also kind of meant um, what was I going to do as an actual career and actually well, I have dyslexia that was undiagnosed initially in school so I ended up in the thickos class the special needs classes and um, uh, and English clearly wasn't the subject I got on very well with um, 
but I sort of sought refuge and used my hands and found I was quite creative. Loved helping my dad out uh, with um, DIY projects and woodwork. <clears throat> and there's this newish um, subject called industrial design or product design, as it's now known. There wasn't a huge amount of information about it, but I was absolutely bowled over by uh, the prospect of designing the future of consumer products and things. So I caught the bug quite early on for that and realised I wanted to go to the best university to study this. And for the next several years, did everything I could with absolute laser-focused determination to to get as good as I could at this and learn as much as I could about the skill set so I could get on the best university course. Brilliant. I mean, it's great to hear that you're into product design so early on so many people don't know what they want to do even if they know they want to design and do something design related and you had that that you know determination to do that right from the start and trunky as an idea came along really early on didn't it yes yeah, so i was a, a second year design student at northumbria university which is a, a semi-famous for jonathan ives of apple fame he studied there for years prior uh, and yeah we entered a national luggage design competition that was sponsored by a large plastics manufacturer and I went off to my the local department store in Newcastle, Phoenix, and Eldon Square, uh, looking for inspiration. And it was there in the, the luggage section. It was all a bit black and boring and, uh, and struggled to find much, although I did note at the time hard-molded suitcases were quite fashionable uh, by the likes of Carlton and Samsonite. So using that new manufacturing technique in, in the luggage space, with injection molding, uh, and kind of drifted off into the kids' toy section. I guess I'm a, a big kid at heart and maybe attracted by all the bright colours. But uh, I distinctly remember stood in front of the ride-on toy section, uh, reminiscing about how my younger brother uh, loved riding his ride-on tractor around the garden relentlessly. But, but these toys were all made using rotational moulding, which wastes an awful lot of the space inside the product. And, and you kind of recall those ride-on toys with a seat that you can lift up with enough yeah. storage space for an apple or two. And um, and it just hit me that why not make a ride-on toy using this adult technology of injection moulding and maximise that internal space and make it ergonomic and fun for kids to ride on. And uh, the Eureka idea of a ride-on suitcase was born. Like the very first sketch I did was a woolly mammoth uh, with long tusks, just as a bit of a... A uh, bit of humour. Obviously, one <laughs> had to go because that, that can't easily be manufactured. Yeah, the idea was born and I went on to win the competition in 98. The, the judges took me aside and said, you know what, Rob, you've got quite a commercial idea here. You should try and license it to a manufacturer. And that opened the door to um, potentially exploring business. But I'd Brilliant. never aspired to run a business up until this point, although I'd done designed and man- made my own furniture range and tried to sell it and done a few other projects. But um I, I, I was just totally sold on the career choice of product designer. You're in an industry, so both luggage and kids' um, toys, which is almost predominantly made in China, isn't it? Yeah, that, I was actually successful in securing a licensing deal eventually. So sort of um, the first half of 2003, I finally found a startup toy company to take it on that was run by industry execs from much larger companies. And um, we, they were bowled over by the concept. We rushed through um, a global licensing deal that gave the rights to manufacture and sell the product anywhere. And they were manufacturing out, of chi- out in China with um, a Hong Kong-based sourcing agency. And uh, yeah, we, uh, we got the product finally to market. And I decided to take a full-time job 
offer down in Bristol, working for a design consultancy, and moved over here. Uh, and really kind of w- waited for those royalty texts to come flooding in, which sadly, sadly they never did. And a couple of years later, they had only really secured one customer. It was in Saudi Arabia, of all places. So Trunky never came to Europe, never got to America, hadn't really been anywhere. And they're really struggling to sell this quite expensive ride-on toy uh, against much cheaper ride-on toys, and, and they kind of missed the concept of it. Uh, another year later... And I'd literally only earned about $9,000 off my royalties uh, over three years, and they, they went into administration. So um, I, I was actually getting a bit disillusioned after working three years as a design consultant in Bristol. My largest client was Unilever, uh, working for the big brand managers there, for Dove, Domestos, Rexona. But it was kind of a lot more blue sky thinking, trying to create products that people really didn't need to put more bleach down the toilet or electronic deodorant pans or... <clears throat> and I'm really passionate about using good design to, to improve people's lives and just wasn't feeling very fulfilled. So when, when the company went bust, I thought, well, actually, I'll, I'll have a go myself. And to me, it became quite obvious that they'd been, uh, then the, the luggage companies were right. It wasn't a piece of luggage and the toy companies were right. It wasn't a piece of, it wasn't a toy. It was, it, what it needed to be positioned as was a consumer lifestyle brand <clears throat> that could cover all categories uh, and just make it really aspirational. Uh, and the brand in its own right. So, um, yeah, I ended up buying the trademark Trunky off the liquidators for 200 quid. Uh, the factory that was making them in China was still running and um, placed my first PO with them. Fantastic. I mean, now, you, you know, now Trunkies have become so common that it, you think, well, it's such an obvious idea for kids to have a ride-on suitcase. How had no one ever thought of it before? And also incredible that... The first time it was launched, it, it 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 failed, and it you know it took the owner or the inventor to take it back on to actually make it a success. Yeah, I was, I was always surprised that it took seven years for ideation through to me taking it on myself. Mm. And over that seven year period, I was still really struck that no one had ever mm. done anything similar. Uh, years later, at various trade shows, a few designers had told me they'd come up with a rise on suitcase concept that in their job but it never went anywhere so um yeah no one was prepared to take the risk on this kind of cross-category product and now they um, all copy it and now it's <laughs> copied that, a lot yeah isn't that ironic <laughs> i mean britain's obviously fantastic for you know the design colleges here and the design skills that we have in this country are amazing but some of our best ideas never actually properly come to fruition or our designers leave you know like Jonathan Ive goes and works overseas and you had a period working overseas yourself as well didn't you yeah I was uh, first job out of university I was over in Taiwan working for uh, as a product designer there um, that was an interesting job that was trying to make uh, the local manufacturers in Taiwan's products more um, more appealing to the west <laughs> using my 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 knowledge of the European aesthetic um, and I had a few interesting adventures uh, and I'd done an internship in New York which was unbelievable this was just as the iMac had been relaunched or been launched yeah. and the, the what else there was the Volkswagen Beetle had just been redesigned so yeah it was really really pinnacle of product design and what it could do so you went back to the Chinese manufacturer who had already been making the trunkies um, under license 
how long did you stay manufacturing in China after that? And, and what was the reason you decided to bring the manufacturing back to the UK? Well, quick quick story on Chinese manufacturers. That 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 manufacturer I placed my PO with went rather quiet over Christmas of two thousand and five, and uh, turned out they gone bust as well. Oh, partly down to being owed money by the toy company, they gone bust. Uh, fortunately, one of the execs that had run the toy company was still based in Hong Kong and running a sourcing agency. So she quickly managed to find another factory. We set up production there. We we're very small fish in a, a very large toy manufacturers. Yeah. Um, Pond, and I was dealing with ridiculous lead times, 120 day lead times, and um, with the ramp up in demand I, I received from launching the product, we just couldn't keep up. So then we moved to a smaller factory, uh, and we discovered that they had subcontracted some of the tooling to what's called garage vendors. So it's, although that factory had ISO 9001 and adhered to all the toy safety standards yeah. and, and not using children, etc., uh, they would subcontract that out to whoever in whatever kind of space with no quality controls or regulatory approvals or anything. Oh, so gosh. when we discovered that, we immediately fired them and moved to our fourth factory, <laughs> which uh, we have still been using today, although they, they don't make that many trunkies now because it's primarily all made in the UK. Yeah. But the reason for reshoring was there were several reasons, and I was just getting really frustrated by you can never really understand your final cost when you're making in China because or the Far East, because you've got their exchange rate fluctuations, both the factories are paying their their workers in local currency, Roman B, you're paying the factories in US dollars, yep. you're importing it, and then you're paying VAT and duty on sterling. Um, so you've got three, three currencies to navigate. You've got very long lead time, so you can't react to demand. All my cash in the early days was tied up with holding inventory. Yeah, then it um, was. And I was on endless flights to China trying to keep improving the product and innovate with product. And meetings in, in the Far East can take quite a long time just to make sure you really understood. Yeah. Yes, they're <laughs> saying yes, not just out of politeness. Um, and then we had, the, I think, 2009, sterling depreciated about 25% against the US dollar, which meant my products uh, were hugely more expensive now, along with everyone else in the industry. And it was a real hard to try and push up the pricing in the market. Um, and also we've got a very volumetric product, so it's quite large and bulky, and the land, it, the shipping cost can be between 10 and 20%, depending on the time of year you ship, and the shipping cartels really ramp up their costs around Christmas time. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of stuff I didn't have control over. And I, I had looked at manufacturing in Europe when I first started Chunky, it was just too expensive. But then after the sterling had depreciated, uh, and I realised that I was paying an awful lot of money to ship my product. I put a tender out to a couple of British manufacturers to see if they could quote for it. Just more out of interest, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get an affordable price. But sure enough, one one factory quoted pretty much the same landed cost price from China, taking into account the extra shipping cost. And um, I was really excited. And we ended up re-engineering the trunky so make it cost effective to make in the UK. Or in the West, so we removed all metal parts. There are 25 metal screws and pins that hold the Chinese version together. We got rid of all of them, and it was just cleverly engineered to snap fit together. And that, that had another great benefit of not just a, um, streamlining the assembly line, but 
uh, and, uh, and eliminating all the metal parts, which are child safety risk anyway, and small parts and where there's any cadmium, any lead in, yeah. in the, the metal. But we then had a product that was very easy to recycle at the end of its life. Um, the whole thing could be dumped in that plastic bin at the recycling centre. Um, so, we, you know, it was quite a bit of work to re-engineer the product and still make it look exactly the same, but we achieved that. Um, we reshored production um, just in time for the Olympic Games of the summer of 2012, and my PR vision was having trunkies running off the production line with the TV stations filming it with Union Jacks on the side and we partnered up with Locog and got an official license and, and I achieved that dream of every national news network coming down filming these trunkies running off the production line That's what brilliant. could possibly go wrong <laughs> come on then what went wrong <laughs> well, the, Did the, you- the factory's the factory struggled to keep up with our demand and it was a very slow process trying to get the volume out of the factory. They'd relocated from uh, Totnes to Plymouth to a much bigger facility so they could uh, mass produce our product and sub- another product as well. Um, and they were traditionally a trade molder making much smaller runs. So um, mass production and assembly was quite new to them and the printing. Uh, we just had all these bottlenecks and, um, uh, and towards the end of the year, I mean, I was really passionate about British manufacturing and reshoring, and there was saw uh, we were on the cusp of a big wave of reshoring. Mm. Um, and, and I've been mulling over whether to have a conversation with the, the MD about doing a joint venture. Uh, but I was invited to a meeting in London just before Christmas, and he told me they were on the brink of going into administration. Um, would we be interested oh, in, in buying them out of administration? So um, very quickly, it felt like the right thing to do, not, not least save the jobs down there and I understand manufacturing to a degree but also it would really allow us to innovate and keep our supply chain really tight and also manufacture for other brands and companies out there um, Mm. which is what we do today. So that's incredible that you actually could make the product for almost the same price by the time you'd covered the cost of currency fluctuation and shipping, make it for almost the same price in the UK as you could have done in China, which is obviously what, you know, I make it British. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I know that that is possible. So why do you think more brands, I mean, particularly toy brands and luggage brands, because I don't think Carlton don't make here anymore, do they? No, Carlton Carlton went bust and ended up, I think they are acquired by an Indian company. Well, Samsonite do make in Belgium. Um, uh, some of their products are still made in Belgium. But, I mean, one of the one of the challenges we have when we be sure it made a lot cost sense for our UK domestic market, which at the time was our biggest market. But it's a real hard sell to get our distributors, even across the border, in Europe to buy from the UK because they, they're just so used to buying in China. Right. And that, that, that was a cheaper price from China because they'd still have to ship the product from the UK to wherever it may be. And actually the trucking cost from the UK to France or Germany is the same as the container cost from China. So they were looking at um, a more expensive product. And, and very frustratingly, it took us a long time to convince them to buy out of the UK. They now love it because they can buy much smaller quantities and have to commit to uh, large amounts of stock. But it was quite an educational experience to to push that through. Plus, I think it must be able to get to them quicker than putting it on a boat from China. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so yeah. smaller stockholding, being able to manage the inventory a lot more dynamically. Mm. Um, and we pride ourselves on customer service and they're very, very happy that they get an incredible level of service from us because we can be so reactive and nimble. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that... that 
that was one of the challenges and and it did cost quite a bit of an investment up front to um to re-engineer the product to make it more cost effective um but when we inherited the factory we ended up inheriting quite a lot of their third party business and um and yeah we, we've seen quite a lot of those guys adding on bringing back more of their, the, their products from china great uh, and, and a couple of uh, smaller uk kind of startup businesses are now working with us to make um, various products some in the cycling world um so yeah it's great to see all the stuff we can make there yeah. from um from medical ambulance helmets all the way through to um uh, very high precision car automotive parts. So, how will Brexit affect your business? Well, we've it, it's been the reverse of that challenging with the the, uh, the massive increase in cost that we had when we manufacturing in China because mm. of sterling. We now have benefited enormously over the whole Brexit period with the devaluation of sterling. So it's much more cost effective for us to be manufacturing in the UK and exporting out. So that's been a, a big win. Um, how are we going to navigate uh, what will that end up being our eventual exit from Europe? It's probably going to be more around the logistical side and we have our own logistics operation next to the factory. Uh, it'll be a bit more paperwork for shipping our products out into Europe. Um, but pretty much all our customers are, are UK based. Um, the trunky business is international. Where, do your, where does your raw material? Where do your raw materials come from? Where does the plastic come from? Does, is, does that have to be imported? Its actual source is probably over in Germany, right. but we buy through a UK vendor yeah. that, that supplies us. Yeah, and you now so the trunkies you can they you can make them completely sustainable because you can take them back and melt them down. Is that right? Well, I would love to be able to take trunkies back, re-grind them into plastic and re-mould them, which was always the vision. Mm. Unfortunately, because we're making a product that we certify to toy standards, any metal flake coming off those um, big steel teeth that grind the plastic could contaminate the product and make it fail the safety um. testing. So unfortunately, it was much I'd love to have that complete closed loop. Um, we haven't been able to do that just yet. So it does just go off to... Uh, a big plastic recycling plant um, and get made into whatever it may be, park benches or roadsides. Of course. Um, but, yeah. but from a, a sustainability point of view, I'm really passionate about um, uh, reuse. So there's a huge amount of confusion out there in the market. And, it, and, and rightly so, because it's a very complex problem to solve. But, but plastic isn't all bad. And the, the stuff that ends up in oceans is what we call single-use plastic, primarily, which is all about packaging, FMCG-type stuff. It's not durable, long-lasting plastic products. Um, and, and our products, we offer a five-year guarantee. They, they're generally used from the ages of two up to seven. So they have a, an incredibly long lifespan. But they're built so well, they get passed on, they get handed down, they get resold. Um, so actually, the lifespan of a trunkie is, is, is incredible. Um, so you get so much reuse out of it, and eventually it then ends up getting recycled. But actually, I, I like to champion the idea of uh, when your child's outgrown your trunkies, use it as a childhood memory box. Don't use that cardboard box to keep a few keepsakes in. Keep all their oh, memories yeah. in the trunkie and keep it forever. What a great idea. Amazing. So how many trunkies do you make in your factory in Plymouth every year? And our, how, what percentage of the collection is made there of the, of the range? 
Well, we, we manufacture in Plymouth for, for Europe and the US and Southeast Asia. We still manufacture in China because the supply chain um, makes sense. Uh, I mean, to date, we've made over 4 million units worldwide in the 14 years we've been trading. Uh, and um, we, we make several hundred thousand down in the factory. I don't want to give the exact number away, but uh, we, we, we make quite a few down there. What about your booster pack? Because my kids have both used your booster pack, your travelling backpack. I would imagine they're probably made in the Far East, are they? Do you manage to make uh, some of those? In, they are in... at the moment. It's actually a current project uh, to look at reshoring that. Excellent. Um, the fabric. Fabric will still be made, fabric cover will still be made in China, but the, the moulding of the, the plastic bucket or seat um, and all the assembly would, would probably be done in the UK. We're, we're just actually looking at that as a, a live project. Excellent. Well, that's really good to hear because those backpacks are, um, they're amazing. I mean, whenever, I mean, again, another product, I mean, you're a true product designer, aren't you? You, you solve a problem, which is you go traveling on holiday and you end up hiring a car and you have to hire two or three car seats for your kids that cost the price of the car seat by the time you've had a two week holiday. Where, and they're covered in other child's vomit yeah, as well. Oh, God, yeah, we've been there with that one. And yet, once, so once yeah. we discovered your um, your booster packs, which you can also double up as the kids' bag, to, you know, they can be responsible for packing their own bag and taking it on the plane. Yeah, they're just genius. It was a similar solution to Trunky, although the idea came about through running focus groups for parents and asking them what the next greatest oh. travel way was. And when lots of swear words were used <laughs> to describe this experience of travelling with car seats, I knew it was an opportunity. But booster cushions are rotationally moulded, waste a lot of that internal space. Surely there's a way where we can injection mould a, a hard shell that gives you access to that internal space. Mm. And we, te- we teamed up with a, a car seat engineering company because um, there was no way we had that that know-how um, to to actually get something fully certified for the European standards. Um, and that's been a, a fantastic product. So I'll start the next bestseller after the Trunkies. Yeah, I bet it is. So what advice would you give to someone else who is thinking of bringing a new kids product to market? Well, I suppose there's one thing that I think has done us really proud is, is understanding your customer. We've got two. We've got the parent who buys the product, who looks for utility and function, and then you've got the child who uses the product. So they, they really want to find it. they really want a product that they can fall in love with that has some personality. So all our products, we try and tick both those boxes and really understand the dual function, the dual purpose of the product. Um, so really understanding your customer. Um, and do you do your customer research too? So many people have an idea on the sofa and think they should be uh, there should be an automatic right to be a multimillionaire because mm-hmm. they've done nothing about it. Um, but your initial idea as a product designer, I mean, you have hundreds of ideas to have one good idea and then it iterates, 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 and you finally end up with a product that's nothing like your first idea, but it's a product that will be marketable, that can sell and can be made. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, lo- a long journey you've got to go down from initial idea to having it developing that idea to be something that people actually do want to buy, not just with friends and family, and then getting it to market at the right price point um, with a, a good USB behind it. So that, that's the real hard graft, which um, not enough people really uh, have a go at. Yeah. I mean, have there been quite a few iterations then of the Trunky through the years? And, and you said you already had to redesign it to fit into you know, the UK production that you were doing. 
the 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 UK versions are what we call our Mark Five, so five iterations. Mm -hmm. The very first one actually didn't have any carry handles on the top. A great example of listening to customers. Um, so my research said kids shouldn't carry heavy bags, so I took the carry handles off in my design, and it just came with a toe strap, um, so they could tow them along. But then. That was yeah. the Mark one that I launched with and then had quite a few customer inquiries saying, put some bloody handles on it. I've got to carry it up the escalators. <laughs> from the parents. Uh, from the parents. Yeah. So the Mark II <laughs> featured a carry handle. Um, and then the, the early designs um, had a very large seating platform on the top just to just from an aesthetic point of view, maximizing that internal space. But actually to pass the US toy standard, it failed on one particular point, and that was what's called the topple pet test, where the, the trunky was put, or any ride on toys put in a, an inclined surface, and then uh, and a, a weight supplied X distance back from the edge of the seat. Uh, and if it topples, it fails. And because it was such a long seat, uh. it, it toppled and failed. So I had to reduce that seating surface. And the solution ended up being uh, solving another problem we had, which is in, in stores, trunkies were always on the ground or on the top shelf because they were quite hard to merchandise uh, without a, a specialist display stand. So mm. um, we, I, I put two scoops at the front and back of this saddle area at the top that perfectly lined up with wheels, which meant you could then make trunky pyramids and great pieces of point, install point of sale just by using the product without oh, having to bring in a, an FSD or anything. Uh, and it also meant the seat was then that size that it needed to be to pass the US test. So that was our, our Mark Three. What Mark were you on when you went on Dragon's Den and Theopathetis famously um, broke the strap on one of your trunkies? <laughs> Yeah, that was the that was the that was the first mark, the Mark One, um, and that that was around the, the toe the toe strap hook, which um, which was a, a which was strong enough. It just flexed, and it was made out of polypropylene or fairly weak plastic, and um, it was strong enough to Richard Farley around the studio. It wasn't strong enough for the Theopathetis test, and um, uh, and yeah, I got. Fiercely rejected from the den uh, on the back of that, but it was such an easy problem to solve. But and I told them we just manufacture it in a stronger plastic. Like overnight, we can have that made in a nylon or a tick and a seatbelt, and it'd be strong enough. Um, so yeah, they they I just couldn't convince them of, of how simple a problem that was to solve. Did that? But being on Dragon's Den because it, you were the most kind of famous, not the most famous, but the most infamous product or. Um, inventor on Dragon's Den because of that. Um, did that help sort of launch the, the product in some way, just the exposure you had from being on the show? And what happened straight afterwards? Did you get other investors getting in touch with you that were interested in trunking that could see its potential? So Dragon's Den I, was actually filmed two weeks after my first inventory arrived in the UK. So 1,600 pink and blue trunkies had only arrived two weeks earlier and I'd only quit my job two weeks earlier because I now had some products to sell and make some money. Um, so it was right at the beginning of the, the go-to-market strategy. And um, yeah, I needed I needed some money. I went in asking for £100,000 to 10% of my business, so a million pound valuation. Um, I needed some mentoring because I had never studied business, didn't know much about business at the time, although I was rapidly learning. Uh, and I needed some marketing exposure. I certainly got the latter. Um, <laughs> and when I when I was rejected from the den, the BBC told me they'd give us six weeks' notice, um, but they never gave me any notice. And I'd, I'd go down to the local... Um, 
news agents pick up the Radio Times every week to see if there's any mention of Trunky being gone. And the penultimate episode was just about to air and went down, picked up my copy of the Radio Times, Tuesday night, BBC Two, um, nine o'clock, wheelie rubbish. <laughs> oh no, is that what the Radio Times Yeah, that's what the BBC it? promoted the episode as. Cruel. So I knew this was going to be car crash telly, but blimey. Oh. Uh, so, I, I mean, the, the night it aired, I thought, well, I'm going to get some web traffic. Um, no one's going to want to buy a trunk in. I might have to close the business the next day, but I'll, I'll, what can I do with all this web traffic? I'll, I'll just post the survey up and try and get some more customer feedback. And that night, over 2,000 people filled in this online survey. We had 350 wow. times more web traffic than we'd ever had. I say we, it was still just me in those days. And um, with phenomenal words of support, the public just saw straight through the theatrics, really got the product. Uh, and I suddenly realised, oh, I've been trying, trying to get this product to market for seven years, or nine years then, and manufacturers couldn't see it, investors couldn't see it, and retailers couldn't see it. But as I've always believed, the consumer gets it. Yeah. So it was kind of a, a final proof of pudding moment and um, we couldn't keep up with demand for the next three years. Brilliant. So you sold that those for that first order that had just arrived pretty, yeah. pretty shortly after that then. Yeah. Excellent. And then they revisited you, didn't they, to see, uh, to make Theopathetes eat humble pie. <laughs> well, yeah, you didn't quite eat humble pie, unfortunately. So <laughs> I, I've done quite well. Uh, the best that came out of him, but um, yeah, a bit more exposure really. And now, every every season, there's a, a dragon's den. One of the tabloids might run a feature on those that got away, like myself and Tangle Tees. You remember Sean? Yeah, also um, made in the UK. And, yeah, um, made in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's it's it's been great. I mean, it worked really well in the UK. Obviously, we had to. We had a huge piece of brand awareness on the back of that in the UK, but it's taken a while to build that brand awareness internationally. Mm. You said there about you went on it because you didn't have, you wanted to find a mentor because you didn't necessarily have business skills. What do you think that UK colleges, when it comes to designers, how can UK colleges help to, you know, make designers ready for going out there and Putting their getting their products to market and and learning more business skills because I think it's still lacking in colleges, isn't it? That when I know when I studied as a designer and when I came out of college, I had my own business and had no clue about anything to do with manufacturing production or sales. I mean, I was just rubbish. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a tough call, isn't it? Because you still got a lot to learn just on the design side. Um, and I remember putting together costings for products. Uh, 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 at school, at uh, uni, um, I guess now it's, it's it's much easier to launch products um, with the likes of crowdfunding platforms, Kickstarters, mm. Indiegogo's. Um, but there's a bit of a secret with those as well. I mean, it looks like a great way to launch a product, but if you don't have an audience already, it's very very difficult um, to, mm. um, to to get anyone to see your crowdfunding campaign. Um, I mean, I got my my support from the Prince's Trust. That's where I really started to learn about business. Yeah. Um, I qualified for one of their enterprise programs and got a really good mentor um, out of it, and that got me that got me going. Uh, a few years into trading, uh, I joined a local business club um, to talk with fellow CEOs about the, the highs and lows of running a business and sharing that pain. And a lot of the early day problems were around. Um, uh, Lead, lead, leadership learnings and, and getting the team on board and dealing with HR issues. 
mm. as your as your business grows. Um, so that was and now valuable. you're and now you're a factory owner as well. So what were the challenges around that? Because that was also must have been a big learning curve. So the factory had been run um, quite badly, uh, and that's why it went bust. But we didn't realise that when we're doing our due diligence. When you buy a company out of administration, you yeah. can't get much information. So the day uh, the day I got the keys, um, we would discover that the night shift were running scrap all night. They wouldn't turn the machines off. Um, no one had a job description. No one had ever had an appraisal. So it's, I likened <laughs> it to like a, a factory of headless chickens. Uh, that's quite... It's not a very nice thing to say about the people down there. They're really good people. They just hadn't been directed before uh, or their, their real talents hadn't been discovered. So um, it, we had a workshop with the management team and said, look, you guys really need to you need to find something that really excites you about this business. Well, what is it that drives you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I mean, for Trunky as a brand, it's all about creating products that allow people to get off exploring the world with their kids. Um, but, but that's not the same that why or purpose that the factory should have. So it became quite clear that actually the guys down there are really proud to be manufacturing in the UK. So um, that became our strap line, proud to be manufacturing in the UK, uh, proud to be manufacturing in Britain. And um, we just kind of lent more on their, their internal passion and, and their drive and gave them a lot of space to develop um, and, and turn around the business. I sent in a consultant to to try and uh, a financial lady to get all our um, suppliers back on board and, and, and all the financial admin and everything. Um, but it was such a it was such a ball of worms that um, she was initially had a six week contract, I think, and stayed for eighteen months sorting it all out. Uh, one of the biggest challenges we had was we really needed a production manager who understood mass production. We just could not find one. Uh, and eventually we did find a guy, took him on, and he had what what can only be described as a nervous breakdown several months later. So, oh, gosh. <laughs> so we're always on the back foot. But eventually we found that um, the, the team had upskilled by then. We found another good managing director to come in and hold the, the reins for a bit and really, really take it to the next level. And then when he moved on, actually, the, the guys that had been there from the start um, um, have ended up taking over the business with some support from a, a new hire that we took on when we first uh, started that business. So we've got a great management team down there now, and um, we found talent all across the place. So one of the great examples is a lady called Ellie who was just working on the assembly line when we bought them out of administration, and she became our production manager um, several years later. Good. That's good to hear. You've got a woman as a production manager as well. Brilliant. <laughs> so, so manufacturing was never play, all plain sailing. Anyone that thinks that it's easy to run a factory and complains about manufacturers. Yeah, I mean, those, those are the big problems. I mean, you, you obviously get everyday problems um, with yeah. tools breaking and jamming and machines not working. And, and the team there are great at sorting out those problems and only really come to us once they've got a solution, which is great. So we have this mm. problem, but don't worry, it's fixed. That's what you like to hear. And how have you? How's the factory been during the COVID nineteen um, situation? Have you? Did you have to completely close and furlough everyone, or have you managed to keep a skeleton staff there and keep the place running? Yeah, in the in the depths of it, we were able to keep a, a skeleton staff. Uh, it's been tough because still a large part of the business is is trunkies, which are, are clearly affected in the current crisis, mm. being travel related products, but. 
but we're, we're now pivoting our marketing message to talk more about staycations and visiting grandma. And now, yeah. now it's not illegal to have a sleepover anymore. <laughs> uh, we've seen sales really picking up. Um, and then we've got our other businesses, uh, our, sorry, our other uh, customers, mm. and they're all affected slightly differently. But we've got a couple of customers that are in the cycling industry, and um, that's booming at the moment. So that's yes, really it is, yeah. Uh, so mm. yes, it's still, there's still lots of business to be done out there. So what are your plans going forward? Have you got more product ideas inside your head, Rob? I'm sure you have. I suppose the, the last product we launched um, not long before everything got shut down, actually, was um, was uh, a self-initiated product project that I discovered through having my own kids. So for most of the trunky journey, I haven't had kids. And now I've got a, a six, a three and a one-year-old. And um, trying, to, trying to get them to the shops on um, balance bikes and scooters was always frustrating because I just mm. spend endless hours looking at litter and leaves and uh, and not getting a move on. So out of <laughs> frustration, I, I grabbed a trunky strap, tied it around the handlebars and towed them along to the shops, which seemed to get them there in record time. And then when they inevitably say they don't want to ride it anymore, you don't have to carry it. So I was trying to, trying to fashion this strap into a shoulder strap and carry the product, but it's quite a large, bulky thing and you take people out walking on the opposite side mm. of the pavement. Um, so it became apparent that there was a there was a need a, a niche in the market for a folding balance bike and scooter that used the trunky strap. Um, but to bring that to market ourselves was going to be uh, a huge investment. Uh, we didn't have those routes to market established in the sports industries. We didn't have the, the knowledge of the manufacturing base, or we couldn't make it ourselves ready in the UK for the the right price. So we ended up teaming up with Halfords, um, who are the the UK's largest bike yeah. reseller, and and came up with a licensing deal with those guys to launch a folding balance bike and scooter range. So that's our, our last product range that launched uh, just in time for Christmas. Excellent. Uh, so that's in Halford stores now. Well. Yeah, that's in Halford stores now. Um, and we're just, just working through, depending on how quickly we recover, uh, which of our projects will will, will um, be launching next. So you must always have some ideas on the go. But it's, it's always about children's travel gear. You've got to be laser focused on yeah. being the best in the world at one thing. And for us, that's creating children's travel gear, not not getting sidetracked into adult products or into toys or anything yeah. like that. It's, it's just feeding that that one channel. You must um, be the best travelled family. Where do you go on a family holiday? <laughs> uh, we, we, well, we always try, get, always try to get to France once a year. Uh, we've been, some of the best ones we've had, uh, we're over in South Africa for some winter sun that's been really nice um and I, I can't wait to get the kids over to somewhere like canada or australia but the, the jet lags the big big thing there you need to carve out enough time <laughs> yeah with three kids under six yeah so um your book again tell everyone what the name of it is and i'd highly recommend i haven't finished reading my copy yet but i'm i mean i'm so absorbed in it it's, it makes such amazing reading to hear the story behind the brand behind the trunky brand tell everyone the name of the book again the book's called 65 roses and the trunky which um comes from children quite often called cystic fibrosis because they struggle with the pronunciation 65 roses uh, and the subtitles define the odds in life and business and it's really a, a kind of a, a, a page turning story that takes you on my roller coaster ride um dealing with ip battles the ins and outs of running this factory, um, along with trying to start my own family, 
dealing with uh, some of those early tragedies in my life. Really, it's been co-written with um, Dr. Peter Hughes, who's a, a trained psychologist, uh, and we've tried to put in some real, real tips that you can take away and understandings and, and survival tools that I've used uh, to overcome these challenges. And, and I think it's it's quite uh, appropriate at the moment with going through COVID. You know, that's a huge challenge that everyone's trying to navigate and get through. And one of my big tips is really uh, you've got to getting over these storms, getting over these challenges takes a huge amount of mental strength and energy. So we've got to use our energy wisely. And there's no point worrying about things we can't control when things, when, when there's going to be a vaccine, when, when various restrictions are going to be list, lifted. We can't control that. What we can control is what's within our power. So for us, it's controlling our costs, uh, controlling our marketing message. So talk more about staycations and visiting grandma rather than air travel. Uh, and, and if you're using your energy wisely, then you still have a bit of energy left to try and see opportunities too. Um, so yeah, focus on the things you can control, try and forget about the rest. Brilliant. You're a truly inspiring British manufacturer, Rob. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Casey. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday, plus there's bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British-made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.